Well, if we're going to be spending significant amounts of time together, it's probably best if we think about how to live together. It's probably good if we have a conversation about that, right? Maybe you've had conversations like this with, say, a roommate. If you're moving in with someone, you have to have that chat at some point where you sit down in the living room and you look at one another and say, okay, what are we going to do about dishes? What are we going to do about garbage? What are we going to do about routines and bills? Or maybe you're getting married and you have these conversations throughout premarital counseling, What is it going to be like? What are the ground rules for how we live together? Maybe this would have been, in retrospect, a good conversation to have with your family about 13 months ago. Hey, we're going to spend the next 13 months trapped in the house 24-7 together. Let's, Let's talk about how we live together a little bit before we grind on one another. What are the ground rules? What are the expectations? Who's in charge? Who makes what decisions? You should have conversation like that, too, if you're thinking about becoming a Christian. See, becoming a Christian is not really an individual choice. I mean, it is in one sense. It's a choice that an individual makes to exercise their will, to place their faith in Christ. But it is a communal decision in the sense that you are not simply saved, you and Jesus, but you are being brought into the community of God's people. If Jesus is a king, he has a kingdom. He has a nation. He has a people. You are being brought into the community of his church. So as Jesus is preaching the gospel to his disciples in Matthew chapter 18, he's going to have a conversation with them about what it will be like for them to live together. How are they supposed to decide who is great? What's going to happen when someone sins? What what if someone around us starts making dumb decisions and wandering off in a different direction? What if someone sins against me and I'm growing bitter? How is it that we're going to make this work together? That's what Jesus wants to address with his disciples in Matthew 18. The first question that he's going to address is who is the greatest among those in this community? Significantly, it's not the way he starts the conversation. It's the way the disciples start the conversation. This is the question that they are asking. Which one of us in the kingdom is actually the greatest? And I love Jesus' answer. It's it's very strange in some sense. He does not say... My kingdom is an egalitarian kingdom without hierarchy. Don't ask questions like that. Rather, he does say, we need to think together carefully about what true greatness actually is. See, searching for the wrong kind of greatness, greatness in the eyes of other people, will bring disunity and division and destruction and ultimately will pave the way for you to go to hell. But greatness in the eyes of the king, greatness in the eyes of Christ, which is likeness to Christ, will pave the way to eternal life, both for you and for others, and bring peace in the community. So we want to get this right. What does true greatness look like in the community of Christ's people? If we're going to live together, if we're going to walk together on the path to eternal life, how are we to understand what true greatness actually is? is. Jesus is going to teach us this, I think, under three broad headings. The first one is simply this. True greatness begins with humility. It begins with humility. Verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, 
He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is a little bit of a weird question to be asking, right? To go to Jesus and to say, hey, who among us is the greatest? Now, it's important to keep this question in context because, frankly, the disciples have a little more reason for asking this question even than we do. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus has called these 12. He's got all these followers, all these people who've been, who've been following him everywhere he goes as he teaches. But out of all the crowds, he has called these 12 to himself. They have attached themselves to him. They are, in some sense, the greatest, the closest to him. They've been entrusted in chapter 10 with a gospel mission to go out and to proclaim. They've been given authority over demons and over disease. But then among those 12, there's one who seems like he stands out. There's Peter, who Jesus, just in chapter 16, said, is the rock on which I will build my church. That's pretty high praise. But then with Peter, right after being called the rock, he was called Satan. That seems like a bit of a drawback. Peter, who's the same one who, yeah, he walked on the water, but then he also sank in the water. And Jesus said, oh, you of little faith. So, so there's questions about Peter. Uh, among the three, Peter and James and John, th these three seem to be elevated. They are taken up the mountain of transfiguration and they get to see the glory of Christ. And Peter's the one who speaks again, but he says something dumb about tents. So again, there's this question about which one of them actually is the greatest. Are there any dark horses in the 12 that haven't yet elevated to the level of the three? Who could it actually be? There's some reason for them to be asking the question. Jesus is establishing a new kingdom, a new people, a new nation, a new order. What will the governing structures of this order look like? So they had some excuse. I would dare say they, they have far more excuse than we do, or at least than I do, for going on social media and scrolling through to see who has the right takes on which issue, and then I can elevate them or lower them in my mind. What about when we show up to church when we're allowed to gather on, on Sundays and we look around and we see, well, who's talking to whom? Who's doing what ministry? What about when we hear the buzz around the church about who's doing discipleship with whom and who's leading what group and who's leading what prayer meeting and who's leading what Bible study and who's leading outreach to the poor and who's doing what? And all the time we're constantly evaluating and comparing and contrasting and seeing where we measure up against others and where they measure up against others in the church likewise. The disciples at least did the right thing with these questions. They go to Jesus. They go to Jesus and they just ask him. And Jesus is going to answer the question. He doesn't avoid the question. Verse 4 is clear. He answers the question that they ask in verse 1. But before he gets to verse 4, he wants to reframe the question a little bit. He, he takes a child and says, if you don't become like a child, this child that he brings into the midst of them, if you don't become like this child, you will never enter into the kingdom. This, this is a bit of a different question, right? They said, among us who are in, who is the greatest? And Jesus said, let's take a step back and ask if you've even entered in, if you're even actually going to make it. First of all, you have to become like a little child to enter in. If you remember how you entered in, you have the key to greatness once you're in. See, the thing that gets you in is the thing that makes you great once you're in. In what way is a child great? Well, they're really not. 
Um, not, not in terms of standing, not in terms of authority, not in terms of presence when they walk into a room. I mean, Jesus <clears throat> does this remarkable thing where he takes this child and, and puts him in the midst. Like, where did the child come from? So, so the disciples are having this conversation, and all of a sudden Jesus has a child. Like, this is a bit of a weird thing, right? Like, I got thinking about this. Just a minute ago, Jesus, when he needed a coin, found one in a fish's mouth. And a, and a little while ago, when he needed wine, he found it from water. So here he's like, hey, I need a child. Like, where does he get the child from? Anyway, this is where my mind goes. Somehow he's like, hey, come here. And there's a child. Now, here's the thing. The child was not part of the conversation. Nobody was like, oh, I bet the child is probably the greatest among us. The, the child wasn't throwing his hat into the ring for convert. He wasn't throwing his name into the hat. He wasn't saying, I'm going to be the greatest because everybody knew he wasn't. Part of being a child is the acknowledgement that other people are going to tell you what to do. Your place is assigned. It's fixed. And part of the deception of growing older is we think that we have the power to elevate ourselves. A child at least can acknowledge they're not the greatest in the room. They're not the most authoritative. They're not the most powerful. So Jesus wants us to know that the way to get into the kingdom is the way to become great in the kingdom. So the question is, how do we get into the kingdom? It is by realizing as his child that you're not great. Do you remember when Jesus began his public ministry in Matthew? All the way back in Matthew chapter 5, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth in his first sermon in Matthew's gospel said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, who are poverty-stricken. They don't have the funds to pay their way in. They don't have the social capital to work their way in, to manipulate their way in. They have nothing of what's required, and they simply cast themselves on Christ for his mercy. I don't have what it takes. I have fallen short. I have missed the mark. I have missed the standard, and I am rightly excluded from this kingdom but I cast myself on your mercy and take whatever you give. And Jesus says, I give to one like that the kingdom of heaven. So the Christian remembers that in the midst of my brokenness, my poverty of spirit and soul, my insufficiency, my weakness, in the midst of all of that, Christ loved me enough to lay down his life for me and to bring me into his kingdom. I was an enemy, I was hostile, and he loved me. He welcomed me, he made me one of his children. And the Christian, the disciple, can never get over that reality. So that simply being in the kingdom is a greater privilege than I could have ever dreamed for myself. So what does it matter what place I have, what rank I have when I'm here? That'll be determined for me. That's not my job. My job is something else. It's to live out of a place of humble gratitude and acceptance of what Christ has done and where Christ has placed me. See, if I recognize that I got into the kingdom not by my own merits, not by my own strength, not by my own doing, but simply by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, then why do I think I have to prove something to other people now? Why do I have to try to show myself great in people's eyes now? 
Why does it matter to me if judging eyes of other humans are on me, if I know that the approving eyes of my Father have rested on me? Why does it matter if the rejecting eyes of other people are on me, if the Father has looked on me and adopted me? So there's something fundamental. There's a fundamental shift going on here. Greatness, greatness as the disciples are asking is greatness in the eyes of people. What do people value? But greatness as Jesus answered is greatness in the eyes of the king, the king, the leader of the kingdom. What is greatness in his eyes? Greatness in the eyes of our king is likeness to our king. See, the kingdom is is not a democracy. It's not a place where everyone shows up and has a vote and there's a popularity contest and whoever wins the popularity contest is the greatest in the kingdom. Greatness in the kingdom is assigned by, determined by the king. So true greatness can only be granted by one who is himself already great. And other people are not that. They're broken and messed up just like me. If we, if we need proof of this, if there's ever been a time, I, I don't know if we have ever had more proof of this reality than the church in our current day and age that we get it wrong. When we try to esteem who's great in the kingdom, we get it wrong. We think people are great because of their gifts, because of the broadness of their ministry, because of what we see publicly, but in reality, only the determination of God matters. We think people are great who aren't. And the reality is that there are millions of Christians all over the globe who are truly great in the eyes of Christ who are invisible to people around them. The true greatness that Jesus is directing them towards is a greatness that comes from his acceptance, from his estimation. True greatness comes from Christ. It begins with humility, humbling, humbly accepting. I've been brought into the kingdom. I've been given a place in the kingdom. And this acceptance brings freedom. When I stop trying to contend with other people for greatness in the kingdom, it gives me freedom to actually live the way my king wants me to live. So true freedom, it begins with humility, but it moves on to help Others. This is a second heading that Jesus lays out for us is this. True greatness doesn't hinder others. It helps. It's not comparing. It's helping. It's not competing. It's helping. Verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, I think that's a a better translation. I'm not entirely certain why the ESV sticks with causes them to sin. I think maybe it's because it's a familiar passage to many of us. I I think that the clear translation of this word is to stumble, to cause someone to wander or to fall short. And that's going to have implications for us as we understand these verses. So whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a great millstone were fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for stumbling blocks, for those things that make us stumble. But, or for, it is necessary that stumbling blocks come 
but woe to the one by whom the stumbling comes. So there's, there's a couple notes here on structure. If you're looking at the text in, in the English translations, I was looking at a couple different English translations, and they all break this passage up differently. I just want to give you an idea of how I've, I've broken it up. See, verses 5 and 6 are a, um, are a couplet. It's, it's like a proverb. There's a positive and a negative side to it. So if you're used to reading the Proverbs, blessed is the one who does this, but cursed is the one who does that, that kind of a structure. That's what you have in verses five and six. So they're a pair that go together. But then the language in verse six of stumbling, as we've highlighted, that language is used six times now throughout the rest of verses seven through nine. So, so this verb is, or this word is going to tie together this whole unit of thought from verse five down to verse nine. Now, for our purposes, I'm taking verse seven with verses five and six here. And if you're looking at that, going, "Why would you do that?" I see that there's a paragraph break and there's a, a bold heading in my English Bible. It's important for you to understand that those paragraph breaks and those bold headings are not actually written by the gospel writer Matthew. Those are translators have inserted those after the fact. It's their best guess at interpretation, just like this sermon is mine. And so um, you'll see the different English translations break this up differently. I'm going to include verse 7 with verses 5 and 6 for reasons that I, I hope become clear, just so you understand what I'm doing here. As I said, verses 5 and 6, there's a parallelism here. There's a positive and a negative. The positive is this. Whoever receives one such child... Now, that one such child refers back to the one who's made himself like a child by association with Christ, by entering into the kingdom in verses 3 and 4. So the child here is not an actual child, like a person who's chronologically deficient. The child here is one who is a believer in Christ. And you see that with the parallelism in verse 6 as well. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. So Jesus is talking about how we receive believers, like hospitality. We're receiving them. We're helping them on their way. The, the picture is you're strengthening, you're edifying, you're building up, you're helping them along. Versus the negative, you're refusing to help them. You're withholding the good that you could do for them, and so you are hindering them in their discipleship. The, the, the picture, it's, it's an image like this. There's a person who is on a mission for Jesus. They're walking, they're following Jesus, they're living out their discipleship, and as they're coming through your town, you have the opportunity to take this weak one and bring them into your house and feed them and equip them and send them on their way or leave them to themselves. By choosing to not help, you are choosing to hinder, to leave them in their weakness, to cause them to stumble in their progress in the faith. Now, why in the world would we choose to not help someone? Why would we choose to hinder another believer rather than helping them? Well, I think the key is in Jesus' use of the word child, because remember, a child is a person of low position, low status. So I think the picture goes something like this. Here comes a person who is insignificant in the social standing of your church, a person who cannot be used to elevate your status in your faith community, a person who cannot give you a platform to do something really impressive and gain the respect of people, but they need help anyway. 
See, if we're clamoring to do something that other people will see, something that other people will be impressed by, something that will look like greatness to people that matter, we will pass this little one, this child by, and refuse to help. If that's the way we're thinking, we will miss millions of opportunities to do what is truly great in the eyes of Christ. Look at Jesus' values as they, as they work out here. This is so important. He says, if you receive this child in my name, you receive me. So if you're receiving this child because they're associated with me and because you love me and you want to show my mercy to this child, if that's why you're doing it, do you know what happens? You receive me. The reward for receiving his children is you actually receive him. Jesus will be present with you and bless you in the midst of your blessing that other one. Contrast that with verse six. You're gonna cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. It would be better for you to get a millstone and go for a swim. This image is, uh, in the words of one of the commentators, graphic. It's graphic. You're supposed to have an image in your mind. Imagine a, a millstone. It's, it's a stone that's used for grinding out grains. And there's different sizes of them. There's ones that, that are typical household ones that you would use that, that a person could work by their own strength. But this particular word that Jesus uses is a donkey millstone. It's the type that can only be worked by a donkey. It is so heavy. A human cannot move it. And so here you are in a boat in the middle of the sea. And there's something tied around your neck. Do you know that feeling of being pulled? Like if you're walking a dog and your dog starts like taking off or maybe you've water skied and you're in the water, you're not moving. And as soon as the boat goes, you feel the rope and it's pulling you. It's just taking you and you can't, you can't get out of it. You're being pulled along. This is the image that Jesus has in mind. There's a rope tied around your neck and you're in the boat and you watch the millstone get rolled over the edge of the boat into the sea and it pulls at your throat and yanks you down into the water so that you plummet all the way to the bottom of the sea. That would be better for you than causing one of these little ones who believe in Christ to stumble, to be hindered in their faith. That's a huge deal, right? Why does it matter so much how you treat the other person? Well, again, it's because though they're unimportant in the eyes of the world, this is what matters in the eyes of our king. This person. He so identifies with this little child who believes in him that he will come with them and bless you if you bless them, but he will avenge them if you stand against them. This is the intimacy. This is the closeness with which Jesus identifies with the lowest of believers. Now, at the risk of making your small group sound too intense, I want to tease out a scenario for you. You are assigned to a small group, Lord willing, in days and months when we're allowed to meet together in groups again. And you get the list and you look at the list and there's no pastors no worship leaders, no movers and shakers, no planners, no heads of committees, no popular people. Just a bunch of people you don't really know and don't seem to have much influence in your church. 
And you, you get there and you're kind of discouraged already and you think to yourself, why am I here? And then you find out that some of them don't even know how to pray very well or read the Bible very well. And the opportunity is there for you to immediately withdraw and pull back and seek something that you would enjoy more. Something a little more spotlight-centric. Maybe the people in your small group are discouraged, they're disheartened, they're weak in their faith. There's opportunities for you to come alongside them, to read the Bible with them one-to-one, or to pray with them, to commit to sending them notes, to encourage them, whatever the case may be. The good that you do to strengthen them, who are of no regard from the world's view, or your decision to withhold the good from them, to hinder them, to leave them in their weakness and to deteriorate the little strength in their faith that they have will be rewarded appropriately by Christ. That's not just true in small groups. That's true when you come on Sundays as well, right? When you look around and you see who's talking to whom and what the plans are, or your eyes open to behold those who are weak, those who are alone, those who are in need. What about prayer? Is there an impulse on your heart to pray for the members of the church who are in need? What about the ministries you sign up for? Are you inclined towards the ones that seem like they are popular or to the ones that are simple background, invisible service? that nonetheless builds up the faith of God's children. So don't, don't downplay this. Don't run away from this. This is actually quite heavy. Look at what Jesus says. Woe to the world, verse 7. Woe to the world because of these stumbling blocks. These things are going to happen. Stumbling blocks, things that are going to hurt Christians, things that are going to make it hard to be a Christian in the world are going to be here just because it's the world. It's hard enough to get by in the world as a Christian as it is. But you know what's a real kick in the pants? You know what really takes the wind out of your sails as a believer? When other believers are against you. When they refuse to help and they leave you alone but woe to the one by whom the stumbling comes. This is a pronouncement of judgment again. Jesus is serious. Your actions, your decisions have impact on others around you. With every interaction, you are either helping or hindering the children of Christ's kingdom. Now this, this sounds really heavy. As we said, it is. But don't lose sight of the perspective of what's going on here. This is all good news. See, if you're living to try to impress people, then all of this is burdensome. If you're trying to do the right Christian things, to get standing, to advance yourself, to compare well against others, this is all burdensome. But if you're just happy to be in the kingdom and eager to serve wherever you can, then what Jesus is telling you is this true humility actually gives you great freedom and promise his rewards. He will be with you in the midst of it. See, true greatness, it begins with humility. It helps. It doesn't hinder others. It also lastly recognizes that not all hindrances to my faith are in other people or in circumstances outside of me. I still have hindrances here. True greatness, here's the third heading, true greatness deals honestly with my weaknesses. 
we're humble, we can deal honestly with our weaknesses. Verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is not the first time Jesus has used this image. It's a familiar image, right? He used it in chapter 5 as well. If your right hand causes you to stumble, if your eye causes you to stumble, cut it off, pluck it out. Now, you know what this doesn't mean, right? This doesn't actually mean go self-mutilate. That's not what Jesus is saying. There's something called hyperbole or, or metaphor. Jesus is saying deal drastically with those things that would hinder you in your progress in faith. Deal drastically with the things that are eroding your trust in Jesus, that are hindering your progress in maturity in Christ. If you already know this, image is familiar. You understand this. We heard this in chapter 5. The question is, why aren't you doing it? Like, what stops you from taking drastic action against the things that hinder you and hold you back as you follow Christ? See, the problem a lot of times is that drastic action is not private. So like take, um, take Jesus' example where he says, cut off your foot if it causes you to stumble. If a sister in our church, again, this is a metaphor. I'm not speaking literally, but I'm trying to imagine the metaphor as Jesus is playing it out. If a sister in our church was like, my foot is causing me to stumble and she cut it off and then showed up at church next Sunday, probably there would be some questions. I don't know, probably some of the guys wouldn't notice the change, but like the girls would certainly notice. They would see and they would ask questions like, what happened? This is terrible. And then you would have to have a conversation. So let's take the internal reality of a sin like coveting, one of the Ten Commandments. If a sister recognizes that coveting is hindering her in her trust in Christ, in her affections for Christ, and yet it is taking over her heart, and self-control has fled and she's constantly looking at things that she wants on her phone, and online shopping takes over her life. She says, this is ridiculous. I won't be mastered by this. And she gets rid of her phone. Then, you know, she takes six hours to text back because she's doing the thing on the dumb phones, you know, where you have to like hit each button three times or whatever. Probably people are going to start to notice when, when she can't engage on the Church Center app like all the cool kids because she doesn't have a smartphone People are going to start to ask questions, and that's going to lead to awkward conversations. Because the reality is not everyone has that struggle. And so in the eyes of people, she is going to now look weak. She's going to look not great. She's not stronger, and therefore not greater. So the implication is this. If you are living for greatness in the estimation of other people, you will not take the action that you need to to deal with your sin because it's necessarily going to be seen publicly. So 
So we want to try to compare the alternatives here. She does not deal with her sin drastically, but she tries to tame the lion by shaving off bits of the mane at a time. She is going to get beaten and scarred and eventually eaten by this thing. It will take over. The same results will happen spiritually. She's going to give in to this indulgence of fantasy shopping, which is going to turn into real shopping, which turns into insurmountable debt, which turns into shame, which turns into withdrawal and isolation from other Christians, which turns into closeness with the world because now all of a sudden she's got more in common with them than the Christians she feels like who maybe are judging her. Whether they are or not, she feels like that. And that leads to a hardness of heart towards Christ because of his people. And that turns into despair and bitterness. Why didn't this work for me when it looks like it works for other people? The whole thing must be a sham. And it turns into disillusion, disbelief. And then you die and you are in hell. It wasn't the shopping. It wasn't the debt. It wasn't even the coveting. At one point, you were willing to deal with that. What was it? It was pride. Your desire to be great in the eyes of others kept you from dealing honestly and openly with what was causing you to stumble. You were so committed to being great in the eyes of others that you allowed the cancer to grow and take over and kill you from inside. Consider the images that Jesus uses here. In in, in verse 3, he says, you will not even enter the kingdom if this pride is active in your life. In verse 6, the drowning by a millstone pulling you down to the bottom of the sea. In verses 8 and 9, he uses this image of an eternal dumpster fire outside the city. So you're banished and you're burning. You're drowning, you're burning, you're banished, you're forbidden entrance to the kingdom. These are strong images of wrath to come, rejection to come. If you pursue greatness in the eyes of people, if you try to impress people. It is a road that leads to hell. But true greatness begins with humility. Openly confessing my spiritual bankruptcy, my weakness, my need. This leads to life. Greatness in the eyes of our King. Jesus, in in Matthew 18, wants to talk to us about how to live together, and it starts by addressing pride, the most fundamental issue that will destroy fellowship amongst Christians or otherwise is always, only, ever pride. But what if we were a community that started here with greatness in the eyes of our King, humbly living to help and not hinder those around us? What if we were characterized by a refusal to move past the greatness that we simply got in and a stubborn belief that when I welcome you as low as you may be or as high as you may be in the eyes of other people, I'm actually receiving Christ and a freedom, a freedom to deal honestly and openly with my sin because I was bankrupt. That's how I got in in the first place and I'm still weak now and that's not a surprise to anyone. What if we were a community like that? I think we'd be on the road to the community, the kingdom that Jesus is just beginning to describe for us. Let's pray.